And this afternoon, we are going to complete that study this morning we were looking at, and it's Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, verses 17 through 23. Paul writes, But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let me get right into it. Paul has been discussing the transforming effects of slavery to Christ. And as we saw this morning, the first indicator of the transforming effect of slavery to Christ is a decisive radical break with sin. You used to be slaves of sin, Paul says. And we come this afternoon to consider, secondly, a second transforming effect of slavery to sin is a life of obedience to God, a life of obedience to God. In the C part of verse 17, Paul says to these Roman believers, you became obedient. And they became obedient, not in a legalistic sense, but obedient from the heart. And here we see that a saving, transforming work of God results in genuine, willing, heartfelt obedience to God. Those who are truly saved, we could say, are not compelled, they are not coerced into doing the will of God. No, it doesn't necessarily mean that doing the will of God comes easily, but what it does mean is that there is a disposition whereby the believer in Christ will want to please God. These believers, Paul says, obeyed from the heart the standard of teaching to which they were committed. The question is, what is this standard of teaching to which they were committed? It is what the Apostle John in 2 John 9 and 10 refers to as the doctrine or teaching of Christ. As seen in the book of Acts, it became known as the Apostle's Doctrine, And it was so-called because it was entrusted by Christ to his apostles. In a word, this teaching, this doctrine of Christ, is the gospel which calls for faith and trust in Christ as Savior. And indeed, one sure evidence that one is truly saved is that not only will there be obedience to God, but commitment to his doctrine, commitment to his gospel. So the obedience of these Roman Christians to the standard of teaching to which they were committed concerned their trusting in Christ, their looking to Christ, is the saving merits of his death and resurrection on account of which they became saved. And this, their salvation, notice Paul, attributes to God. Because notice what he says there in the A part of verse 17. He expresses thanks to God 
for their salvation. He says, but thanks be to God that whereas you were the slave of sin, you have obeyed from the heart that form, that standard of teaching that was delivered unto you. And we could make the point here that salvation through faith in Christ demands thanksgiving for the simple reason that salvation is of the Lord. Salvation derives from God. It is not of human works. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. My friends, the truth is this, that our response of faith and trust in Christ as Savior, our looking to him as Savior, was not as a result of our doing. It was not as a result of our striving. That was essentially a work of God's grace. We are not saved by works. We are saved by the grace of God through faith. And here's the point. Even that faith is not of our doing. Because he says, and that not of yourselves, the word that referring to faith, that faith by which we are saved, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Which means that the day you and I came to Christ as Savior, the day was the very day God first came to us, drawing us to himself with cords of mercy and redeeming love. We might think, yes, there was a day we chose to come to Christ, we chose to believe on Christ, but the truth is Christ came to where we were in our misery, in our depravity. And for this we are ever obliged to thank and praise him. Here's a third transforming effect of slavery to Christ, not only obedience to Christ, but liberation from sin, liberation from sin. Notice in verses 18 and 22, Paul speaks of his readers, that is these Roman Christians, as having been set free from sin. And the question is, in what sense they were free from sin? We could ask the question, in what sense are you and I as Christians free from sin? But it certainly doesn't mean that we cannot sin anymore. It doesn't mean that we are no longer capable of sinning. What it means, among other things, is this, that we were liberated, we were freed, first of all, from the penalty of sin. We were, we were freed from the condemnation of sin. We were freed from eternal judgment. Why? Because Christ paid the penalty for our sins. We were saved, we were liberated, we were freed from the power of sin, that is the bondage of sin, such that sin no longer is a matter of practice, a matter of habit in our lives. Hence note what was said of these Christians, that this ought to be true of those who are truly saved. They became slaves of righteousness. They became slaves of righteousness. That's verse 18, and they became slaves of God. My friends, I tell you what a saved, transformed life is not. Looking at these verses, a saved, transformed life is not simply a matter of ceasing from what is evil and what is sinful. A person could cease doing bad things, could cease practicing certain sins, and yet for all that, be not saved, be not right with God. Positively speaking, a saved, transformed life involves not just turning from sin, not just turning from slavery to sin, but turning to God 
turning to righteousness, as was the case of the Thessalonian Christians. Remember what Paul said of them in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9? They turned to God from idols, but notice what he also says, to serve the true and living God. They turn from idols to serve the true and living God. And similarly, Paul says of his readers here, these Roman Christians, that having been set free from sin, they became slaves of righteousness. Again, freedom from slavery is never freedom in a vacuum. Because consistent with what we have been saying this morning, consistent with the thrust of this passage, we are never in neutrality when it comes to the matter of slavery. We are either slaves of sin or slaves of God. Either we are slaves of righteousness or we are slaves of unrighteousness. So that at any point, you and I are either serving sin, serving Satan, or we're serving God and righteousness. Not to be serving God and righteousness is to be serving sin the fact is, God frees us from slavery to sin so that we might become slaves of God. That's why God saved us. He saved us from the tyranny of sin, from slavery to sin, so that we might become slaves of his, slaves of righteousness. No, this is not the kind of slavery that's marked by oppression, that's marked by tyranny. This is the kind of slavery that's marked by Grateful appreciation of a loving Lord, a God who, in grace, in mercy, in love, gave his all for our redemption. And that, my friends, is what spells true freedom. True freedom is not doing what we want to do. True freedom is not living it up in sin. True freedom is not enjoying the pleasures of this world, the sinful pleasures of this world. True freedom is to come under the yoke of slavery to Christ. As one Bible teacher puts it, he says this, real freedom is bondage to Christ. Doing what Christ likes, being so tied up with him in love's fetters that for to me to live is Christ. If the bands of sin have been snapped and Christ has broken everything that ties us down, there is a new bondage to be wrapped around us so that we are bound by cords of love to the one whose service is perfect freedom. Well, here's a fourth transforming effect of slavery to Christ. It is found in verse 22, and that is the fruit of holiness, the fruit of holiness. Here's what Paul says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. The clear, obvious lesson here for us is that everyone, every single one who is truly saved, who has been truly saved by the grace of God, will to one degree or another bear fruit, the fruit of holiness. That's an absolute statement, an absolute truth. Every true believer in Jesus Christ will produce the fruit of godliness. At the end of the day, what this means is that a professing believer who has never borne the fruit of holiness, who has never had some measure of consistency with respect to holiness of life, is a contradiction in terms. So that a fruitless person, hear me say this, a fruitless Christian, professing Christian, is not a carnal Christian but a counterfeit. Let me say that again. A fruitless person is not a carnal Christian, but a counterfeit. 
It is the will of God that those whom he has saved by his grace exhibit the fruit of holiness. 2 Timothy 1 verse 9 expressly says this, He, that is God, saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages begun. He saved us and called us with a holy calling. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, underscoring the will of God for our holy living. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your ignorance, your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. In fact, so insistent is the word of God on the need for holiness in the lives of those who profess saving faith in Christ that God explicitly warns in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, he urges us to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If fruit is the evidence of root, then we could put it like this, that holiness is the evidence of one who is rooted in the life of Christ. Fruit is a natural evidence of the, of the life which God imparts to those who he has redeemed. Hence, notice the end of verse 22, how that the fruit of sanctification leads to eternal life. Fruit is linked to life. Where there is no fruit, where there is not the fruit of holiness being exhibited in our lives, it suggests then that we are without the life of Christ. We are not rooted in the life of Christ. Again, we're not talking about sinless perfection. We'll never get there in this life. But the question is, does our life indicate a measure of consistency when it comes to the matter of holy, godly living? When we sin, how does it make us feel? Is it no big deal? I can always ask God for forgiveness. Or does it bother us? Are we convicted? Are we striving? Is it the desire of our heart to be conformed to the image of Christ? If it's not there, if there's no desire for holiness, if there's no striving for holiness, then one's profession of salvation is suspect. That's what the Word of God suggests. But now that you have been set free from sin, Paul says, and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Now as we speak of the need for holiness in the lives of those God has saved, here's a truth we should not miss. And it's suggested there in verse 22, it's, the suggestion is this, the word fruit, suggested by that word fruit in verse 22, is that holiness, watch this carefully, Holiness is not the product of sheer human effort. It is not our striving to be so good, to be so holy. That is not the picture of true biblical holiness. Yes, it is true that our cooperation with God by way of submission to him, to his word, is necessary for holy living. In fact, Paul states the need for this in verse 19. Because in verse 19, notice he instructs his readers, he says there, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So there's human responsibility. Yes, the bondage of sin was broken. 
such that we are free in Christ, such that we are free from the power, the bondage, the tyranny to sin through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the reality of our liberation does not mean we take it easy. There's no need to strive after holiness. Though saved, we still, we have to still intentionally yield to God day by day, presenting our bodies to him. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Why does he describe it as a sacrifice? Because it takes effort. But the thing we need to realize, and the point that I'm making here, when Paul describes holiness as a fruit, the thing we need to realize is that at the end of the day, biblical holiness is not something you and I work up. It is not something you and I contrive. Holiness, listen, holiness is essentially the fruit or outworking of the Spirit of God in our lives. He is the one who sanctifies us. He is the one who generates desires after holiness. And that is why all the various character qualities such as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and so on derive from him and are fittingly described in Galatians chapter 5, 22, 23 as the fruit of the Spirit. You'll notice in that passage he uses fruit as against works. The works of the flesh are these. He names them, but then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. What is the point Paul making there? Fruit is that which comes as a result of a life source. And the Word of God is saying here that where there is true life, spiritual life, where the believer is rooted in the life of God, then the fruit of holiness will be generated. Reminding us of what Paul told the Philippian believers in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Here's what Paul says. Work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. That's what human responsibility. But notice what he goes on to say. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, as we draw to a close, notice that in contrast, in contrast to the happy, glorious conditions of liberty from the bondage of sin and the transformation of life by God's grace, verses 20 and 21 speaks of the futility and frustration of sin. Paul speaks of all the glorious wonders, all the glories, all the blessings of slavery to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he ends this discussion by pointing to the futility and frustration of sin, underscoring the point, how can we continue to live in sin just because we are not under law? Listen to what Paul says in verses 20 and 21. He says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Paul is saying here, as it were, yes, in your old life of sin, when you considered yourself free, you were living it up, you thought you were having a good time, you thought you were master of your own ship, you were doing your own thing, going about your own course in a life of sin. Where did that put you? What benefit were you deriving from that kind of life? What fruit were you reaping from it? And of course, the obvious answer, the implied answer is none. The point is that rather than proving fruitful, such a life afforded them nothing of value. Nothing of value. 
Such a life is it only in frustration, in shame. He says, those things you used to do, those things of which you are now ashamed, what fruit did you have? What benefit did you derive from them? Those drinking binges, those illicit affairs. At the end of the day, where all of that put you, is what Paul is saying. This reminds us of Solomon's experiment with life apart from God, when he, which he journaled in the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon, after cataloging his fleshly worldly pursuits, after telling us all that he pursued, following his own senses, giving into his various lusts, he reports, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Ecclesiastes 1, 2, 12, 8. He saw them as nothing but a striving after the wind. He says they're nothing but vexatious. What was Solomon saying? Solomon was saying the path of sin, pleasurable as it was, at the end of the day, everything, all of those thrills, all of those titillations, all of those pleasures added up to a big fat zero. And that's exactly the experience of those who are enslaved by sin after promising a great deal, yet failing to deliver sin leaves them in a state of emptiness, it leaves them in a state of shame, it leaves them in a state of frustration, and it ultimately sends them to the grave without Christ into a state of eternal death, eternal separation from God. The futility of sin, the tragedy of sin, the disaster of sin, no wonder the word of God speaks in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25, of the fleeting pleasures of sin. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. You know, discomforting as it may be, uncomfortable and painful as it might be. This recall of what the old life is like is truly beneficial. It's good sometimes for us to stop and think of what God saved us from. It can be a most profitable experience because it helps us appreciate the magnitude of God's saving love when we consider the magnitude, the depths of sin from which God has saved us. As such, it helps us to be more humble before God, to be more thankful to him, to love him more, indeed to praise him more. And with that kind of reminder, that kind of reminder of what our life was like apart from Christ, how it was frustrating, how it was empty, how it led to a dead-end street, should cause us, should motivate us then, having become slaves of Christ, to pursue holiness and righteousness to the glory of God. Our text concludes with one of the most well-known verses in the New Testament, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. How can we continue in sin? Paul says, just because we're not under the law means that we, we don't continue in sin. It's ridiculous when you consider Romans 6 verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. And of note here is the contrast Paul establishes between wages and gifts. Properly speaking, wages represent what? Wages represent that for which one works. That which is one's due, whereas a gift concerns that which one receives out of kindness of another. Whereas wages are what one deserves, a gift is given without regard to merit or deservingness. 
And the point of this verse is that those who are slaves of sin receive their wages. They receive exactly what they work for, which is death, not just physical death, not just the death of the body, but eternal death, which is eternal separation from God. While those who are servants of righteousness and of God receive what they have not worked for, what they do not deserve, that which is totally free and undeserved, which is eternal life. Now, eternal life is a huge deal. It's a big deal. And the thing we must understand, beloved, about eternal life is that eternal life is more than simply protracted, prolonged life. We know it has to be more than that because there are people who will be in hell who will be living an enduring, unending existence. So eternal life has to be something more than protracted, prolonged existence. And positively speaking, what it is, it is such quality of life that derives from God. Eternal life speaks of endless peace, endless joy, endless communion with God. All that is wholesome, all that is good, inheres in eternal life. Eternal life is more than quantity of life, it is a quality of life such as God himself has. It is a life of peace, a life of joy, a life of unending communion with God. So in summary, how gracious a master is God, how great and gracious a master is the Lord Jesus Christ in his gift of eternal life to those who trust him, to those who present themselves to his service. How dreadful and terrible a master is sin in the wages it issues to its slaves. The wages of sin is death, and my friends, such wages are guaranteed for whatever a man sows. The word of God tells us that will he also reap, Galatians 6 verse 7. As one man soberingly puts it, he says this, as sure as a stone sinks in the sea, will the man perish who loves and follows sin. Sin is a terrible master. Servitude under the Lord Jesus, service to the Lord Jesus, slavery to the Lord Jesus is truly liberating. How do we know that? Jesus himself promised. He says, if the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Again, true freedom is not license, is not liberty to do what we want, but is to do God's will. True freedom resides in doing exactly what God wants us to do. And how we are able to do that is through the liberating power of the Spirit of God at work in us. May God bless these truths to our hearts. May he encourage us in the way of holiness, in the way of righteousness, in the way of service to our Lord Jesus Christ, for his name's sake. Amen.